Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. To the table, Dallas. We're glad that you're with us either either live up here in beautiful Mill Street House in what they call now the OTL. The OTL. That's what it's called. The Old Town Louisville area. We're glad that you're here. And wherever else around the world you're joining us via the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. We've actually spent the summer on a deep dive into the fruit of the spirit. Those are the things, the nine characteristics that Paul in his letter to the Galatians identifies as things that we as Christians are to cultivate, that's the key word, right? To cultivate in our lives. We cannot produce this fruit. More effort does not produce this fruit. More uh, trying doesn't. The idea is to have soil, the soil of our lives, be in the place where God can produce this fruit in our lives. And Paul said it should be love, joy, you can follow with me, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against over which there is no such law. Right. So um, as we mentioned throughout the series, um, and this is our final week in the series, um, we mentioned throughout it that even a casual observer would notice how if these kinds of characteristics become those that actually characterize us as followers of Jesus, it will stand out. Like, we just talked about the, the core values when we set the table. If we actually live out those core values and you choose to interact in that way with the non-judgment and being open to mystery and, and you know all of those kinds of things, people will go, wait, why is that different? Because it is. It's in contrast, right, to so much of our current cultural norms. So our fruition series, as I mentioned, draws to a close today with the final of those nine qualities, the final one, which is self-control. Self-control. little peek at the Greek. The word is enkratia. Want to say that with me? Enkratia. Enkratia, the Greek word. It means, it's translated generally in most modern translations as self-control. But if you grew up like many of us did reading the King James, does anybody remember what word was used in place of self-control? It was a popular women's name, too. Girl's baby name. Starts with a T. Temperance? Yeah, temperance. Yes, temperance is the word. So it's a compound word in Greek. Compound word. So the first part of it, E-N or N, means inside or within. So whenever you add that to a word, it's inside or within. And then kratia, interesting, is the Greek word from which we get democracy in our English. So you have this idea of rule by the people. So if you put those two together, inside and rule by the people, how would you maybe put together a meaning or a, like a maybe let's go a, a, like a path of meaning that we would we would uh, attribute to it? Put those together. What might we say self-control is? <laughs> You're right. A rule over your own inside or internal rule, internal control, or anything else? When you think of self-control? Restraint. Restraint. Good. What else? 
Self-regulation. Self-regulation, I like that. Um, in Greek, it specifically is generally, not specifically, it is generally used to describe someone who masters his or her desires and passions. So it recognizes that there is passion, that there are things that well up within us that we need to have control over. To exercise self-control is to discipline ourselves, right? To set boundaries, to rule over our actions. And when we lack in that self-control, what happens? Huh? Chaos. Yeah, usually <laughs> chaos. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm staying kind of away a little bit. I managed to make five trips to Uganda, two years through a, a worldwide <laughs> pandemic, and on Monday morning I got paid, I got COVID. Not to mention the Ebola. Yeah, not to mention Ebola <laughs> twice in Uganda. Oh my gosh. So in the middle of it, I stopped to like get water, or whatever, fill in. So. Do you think that there's, I'm going to start with this question. So this is our final one, self-control. Do you think there's any particular reason Paul ends this famous list of the fruit of the Spirit with this particular attribute? In other words, do we think they're just like random, he's just going along, he's like, you got to have this, this, this? Or does he put it in such a way that this one, this ultimate one, is there for a reason? Anybody? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Can you have self? Can you have all this other without self-control? I don't know. Can you? or your self-control affects the other ones? Mm -hmm. Your self-control affects your ability to love, yeah. to be kind. Yes. Okay. Because yeah, we all have those thoughts. I mean, you know, they aren't so good, but being able to control them and then react differently. Well, and and going back to the regulation. If you go too far the other direction, that's not necessarily what he wants either. So right. it's, it's being able to balance between those two extremes. Right, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, any other thoughts on? For me, this is the hardest one. So <coughs> I think as an emphasis, the period at the end of the statement, you know. Yeah. yeah. Does this particular fruit have an effect on the other fruit of the spirit that we see? Mm -hmm. How so? You're gonna have to help me today. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you don't have self-control, it's hard to implement things like gentleness and stuff. Like yeah. if you're letting your anger get a hold of you, how are you supposed to be gentle? So it's a good regulator. And I love the word. I love this idea that in Greek, it's your it's your passion. So, you know, sometimes, uh, as we'll see in our story today, it's a, it's a, a passion that might have to do with a, uh, anger or an outburst. It could also be, you know, a sexual passion. It could be anything that's, that, that we feel strongly inside of us that needs to be regulated. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts on how those two fit together and why he perhaps ends that list with it? I think this is an extension of... I, I don't get to cultivating the other ones unless I'm at least self-aware. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is one step beyond. It's kind of a teaching moment of, yes, you can know what you need to do, but self-aware means, yeah, I see I did that. Self-control is, I see I did that, and I need to amp up my game. I need to do the next level. Yeah. Or, yeah, basically <laughs> saying, I feel that passion, I feel it rising up, but I need to learn how to harness that, right? 
to, to regulate, right? Um, right. And there are things in our lives we cannot regulate, right? But this is one, right? So in our text this morning, it's 1 Samuel chapter 26. It's, there's a certain irony that goes with our story today in the narrative. It's 1 Samuel chapter 26. And if you don't know your First Testament landscape very well, uh, we're, we're right in that period of the United Kingdom stage where Saul has been removed as king by God. He's basically said, after a period of continued rebellion, Saul, you are no longer going to be my king. But um, So he took the kingdom and he gave it to David, King David, right? The problem is that somewhere along the line, Saul didn't get the message, or more likely, he resisted the message, and he decided to make David's life a living, I'll use the word nightmare, to, to make it a living nightmare, okay? So time after time, Saul's wrath and his jealousy were kindled to the point where all he wanted to do was kill David. So you have someone who's being portrayed continually leading up here as someone who lacks self-control, among other things, right? He could not self-regulate himself. He could not even submit himself to the God who said, you're no longer king. He's like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to keep, I'm just going to keep going as it was. And then contrasted to that, you're going to have this character, King David, who faces the powerful temptation of choosing between self-gratification and self-control. And so we're going to see both sides of the coin in our story. But what I find ironic is this is King David, young King David, exercising self-control. And if you jump literally one book ahead to 2 Samuel, what do we find out about David? He's got self-control. Yeah, he's got, uh, his passions are out of control in a number of ways. The most obvious one is Bathsheba, right? We know that story. But there's other things that go with it that lead up to that. His passion for counting his men and his chariots and all the things. I mean, there's a variety of things we could hit at, right? So there's a certain irony and humanity, um, as we say, in the way these First Testament stories are told. It's the way the stories that are told, really, that are supposed to really grab our attention. So we're going to read the first 12 verses um, of 1 Samuel 26. Um, it's not the entire story, but for the purposes of, of our conversation this morning, it gives us what we need. So 1 Samuel 26, first 12 verses, and we read from the Common English Bible just because um, I like the translation and it puts us all on the same wall. So it helps us for following along. All right, 1 Samuel 26. Somebody read 1 to 12 for the benefit of those on podcast with us. The Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah. David is hiding on Hekelah's hill, which facing Jishimon. They said, So Saul got up and went down to the, to the Ziph wilderness to look for David there. He had 3,000 hand-picked soldiers from Israel with him. Saul camped on the Hekelah's hill opposite Jeshmon, beside the road. But David stayed in the wilderness. When David learned <clears throat> that Saul had come after him into the wilderness, he sent spies and discovered that Saul had definitely arrived. So David got up and went to the place where Saul camped, and saw the place where Saul and Abner, Ner's son, and Saul's general were sleeping. Saul was sleeping inside the camp with the troops camped all around him. David asked Ahimelech uh, <coughs> the Hittite and Joab's brother uh, Abishai, uh, Zer Zariah's son, 
who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go down with you, Abishai answered. So David and Abishai approached the troops at night and found Saul lying there asleep in the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. Abner and the, and the army were sleeping all around him. Abishai said to David, God has handed your enemy over to you today. Uh, let me pin him to the ground with my spear. One stroke is all I need. I won't need a second. But David said to Abishai, don't kill him. No one can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and go unpunished. As, <clears throat> as surely as the Lord lives, David continued, it will be the Lord who will strike him down, or his day will come and he will die, or he'll fall in battle and be destroyed. The Lord forbid that I lift my hand against the Lord's anointed, but go ahead and take the spear by Saul's head and the water jug and let's go. So David took the spear and the water jug that were by Saul's head, and he and Abishai left. <clears throat> no one saw them, no one knew they were there, and no one woke up. All of them remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had come over them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. So first, we got to give a round of applause to Caleb. <laughs> <laughs> so the secret to reading First Testament narratives is what? Say own it. Confidence. Whatever, whatever you're doing. However you're going to read that person's name, if you say it with conviction, no one will be right? Am I right? Can I get an amen? Amen. Alright, good. So, um, any, just, just off the top here, um, without going too deep, but just anything that stood, I saw a couple of you like chuckle at a couple places or whatever, something that stood out to you just like, oh wow, I forgot about that or something, just Quickly before we dig, dig kind of verse by verse. Any anything the, the about first the character? Thing that came to my mind was how this was how they got that close to yeah. him, mm-hmm. and, and then the last the last verses well, the Lord put everyone in yeah. a deep sleep. Yeah, yeah. You get that piece of like uh, you're like me maybe like you see it like a film, uh-huh. yeah. right? Don't you see it like oh, the yeah. 300 or one of those kind of film? Where you're like, how did they manage to get that close? Like past all the guards and everything, it feels miraculous. And then we find out at the end that it, it, it was. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, what deep, that deep sleep is also the same one that he put Adam in. A same, word. same word. Mm, same word. Same word. That's yeah. cool. No, I, I got a kick out of it. I'm getting the Abishai props on his yeah. self-control. Yeah. You know, it, it's only going to take one. It ain't going to take two. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, it's just like, hey, I, he's one of my warriors. Is like, you pulled me for a reason. Okay. Well, and, and he restrained himself from the accidentally. Yeah. 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 Oh, oh, I slipped it. My spear fell. <laughs> right into the yes. What else? Any other just things that kind of stood out to you? Like, oh, because I saw some of you like chuckling. Well, the fact that they went down there to begin with. Yeah. It was just like, if you're not going to do something, it, you know. Why risk it? Why put yourself in harm's way like that? Unless you know, unless God told him to go do it. Well, you know. but these are young men. Having taught freshmen for some twenty-five years, this is very. Let, let's go. Let's go. Let's go see. Let's go. I'm not touching you. Let's go. Hope the bear. Yeah, yeah. I like, but I like the dance. It's like, why bother going down there when? I mean, what's going to be accomplished, right? You could be like, oh yeah, man. Like you say, hey, I got in and out of that camp, and no one saw me. I I thought the three thousand hand-picked soldiers was interesting. 
Yeah. The one's loyal, he has to handpick them because they have to be loyal to him. He's not really the king. Like, David has already been anointed by Samuel, right? So, I mean, there's this kind of like, some group think he is, some people are following David, so he's handpicking for what? Loyalty. Mm-hmm. And you would probably argue military prowess too, right? I mean, you want both, right? Good. Anything else? That's a lot. Of, that's a lot of so. It's a lot. Especially for the mountainous police place where they work, right? Yeah. For Amishai, he's specifically listed as a Hittite. No, the or what the other ones are hit. Yes. So, but still, like... David's collected a band of yeah. Mary brothers right. from all over the place. Right. Yeah. I find it interesting that he, he said, don't kill him. No one can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and go unpunished. Well, he's sort of been unanointed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just kind of... The, the language is interesting. So let's, let's kind of chew into the verses a little bit. So in the first four verses, kind of let's stop. And I think the author intends for us, and this is one of the principles at the table, right? We enter into the narrative from the perspective of someone who was there. So put yourself in David's position. Remember, it can't mean to us what it first didn't mean to, to, them. to the original hearer. Notice, David, you notice in that book that, uh, that you... Referenced that that was one of his key principles for understanding the First Testament. So smart people think alike. Is that what you're telling me? I better you read him. Well, he didn't write it until this year. All right. So if you're in David's position, what are some of the things you might feel in this situation, especially when you're considering, you know, this person has been trying in every way possible to kill you. I might suggest that there are some conflicting emotions. Mm -hmm. So let's kind of dig into that a little bit. What are some of the things that you might be feeling if you're David in this situation? Anger. Why anger? Anger is always a secondary emotion. Well, because this man's been trying to kill me all these times, or several times now, and I just, I would be frustrated and tired and wanted to be over, especially if I was knowing that I was God's anointed next king, king I like I just wanted to stop. So you, you identified the primary emotion there when you said you were frustrated. And frustration that's unresolved ends up being anger, right? Good. What else? Fear. I mean, fear. You've got 3,000 or however many he's got chasing him and he's got his little band. He's of, got like 300. Yeah, so they're so. 10 times the size. Yeah. Fear? emotion this would be, but David did latch on to the idea that he was anointed to be the next king. I mean, th- this isn't the first time that he had an encounter with Saul. Uh, three chapters over was when Saul was in the cave right. and clipped off part yeah. of his, his, robe. his robe, which that is very significant in itself, not just because of proximity, but the symbolism. Was, symbolism. Uh, the, the jar and the spear are also symbolic. Specifically that, of? of he, uh, well, the jar uh, being at Saul's head and the spear. Uh, in the Hebrew, there is a missing letter in that word, meaning that the headship is gone. Mm-hmm. Your Saul's headship is gone. And David took it with the jar of water and the spear. Spear is the authority. The jar of water is... Uh, the, the kingdom being able to expand. 
Saul's kingdom can't expand anymore because of that jar. It's the same word. It sounds funny. But see, isn't this exactly why? That's a perfect illustration of why we have to go back and put ourselves in the situation and understand. We think, oh, it's just a, it's just a jar. It's just a spear. Just you know, no, it's specifically put there, and specifically that's what's taken. That's what's marked off because it would have had a meaning to the original hearers that we have to grasp here. Right, because so none of felt empowered. And yeah, probably you already have victory, just like. He's sleeping like a little baby, yeah. and you're already there, you know, so he didn't kill him with kindness. And Correct. he didn't take everything. He didn't take everything. Because later it's like, I let you live. Showed more empowerment <clears throat> and authority that he... That's correct. And there was tons of things of more of value that he could have taken, right? That would have been more profitable to him in terms of gold and, you know, things that would have been, you know, symbolic... Uh, not symbolic, that would have been real tangible things. Instead, he goes for the symbolic things. Right. So this is a symbolic transfer, essentially, of the kingship, even though yeah. Saul's not dead. You know, if he had the encounter of the cave where he stole part of his cake, you know, and then the spear and the water, you know, the kingship is symbolically transferring over to David piece by piece, bit by bit, yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, but really, David couldn't have done it without... Uh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, so even that, it's not like they would have tapped into that because I wouldn't know that you'll get on there and grab a bottle of water and home, you know. Kind of yeah, I don't know that the narrative doesn't set up that we're intended to think that David knew any of this before he went down there, that he was going to do that. It kind of has a different feel. And the fact that the narrative doesn't, the narrator does not tell us, narrators don't tell us that um, it was God who put him into a deep sleep until at, at the very end of that part of the story leads you to wonder the entire time, like, is this God? Is this miracle? Because no one in their right mind is like, okay, two dudes just sneak into a camp of 3,000 and go right up to the king. One soldier and he didn't wake yeah, up. So yes, it's not like a bunch of, you know, uh, seals who are going in there secretly snapping necks and whatever. Right? And I don't think it's something David planned out either because he was, that's he was so much more impulsive and did things off the cuff for his kind of personality where I don't, he wouldn't have thought that through, I don't think either. It's hard to know, but yeah, I could see that. I wonder, it makes me wonder how uh, Saul felt when he woke up and realized this had happened. And he goes, again? <laughs> this happens again? You know? I, to me, I'm like, yeah, that, it being gone, it's David saying, I was here. Like, Saul will know immediately. Yeah. I also think that, I'm just imagining being one of Saul's men, that it's their job to guard him. <laughs> they didn't do that. They all know their king could have died. But also, that their king was not killed, but the symbols would have spoken to me as one of Saul's soldiers, like, ooh. I backed the wrong team. Mm. And maybe God's with David, because how did they get away with this? Yeah, every, every soldier would have Versus they if they had been. just killed him, I, as a soldier, would have been, revenge, you know, versus questioning, potentially. Yeah. Like, where <clears throat> should my loyalty be? That's good. So, yeah. Yeah. To me, it seems like David might be a little bit conflicted because it seems like there is still an affection between Saul and David. Master, servant, son. I mean, it's. I think at one time Saul and David probably had a great relationship. 
Yeah. Um, yeah there was a phenomenal or a phenom, um, cultural phenomenon, I guess, around the HBO series um, Succession, um, where it played this dynamic of you got this 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 weird loyalty, family loyalty going on with the, with the dad and the, and the sons, and you know it's th that tension. Like, and I think you're right. There's that that like he loves Saul, but every time he he expresses that, Saul is like you know because it's the same one who would be like, I'm going to kill you. Oh come, please play songs for me. Oh I'm going to kill you, please. You know that kind of thing. So yeah, I think you're you're 100 right in identifying that. That there's a love there and a sense of maybe do you think of betrayal? Does that sound fair, or is that too harsh? I think it's fair. <coughs> is he had already married Saul's daughter Michael, and the verse right before this passage says that Saul gave Michael to somebody else to be married. So it, it was betrayal. <coughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. Saul, yeah. Saul had betrayed David in that. Family. Saul's got. Issues. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, is this the same spear that Saul threw at David and tried to pin him to the wall? Yeah. I think so. It makes sense. I mean, that's semiotics, right? We're reading the we're reading the story in the way that we're to be making connections, right? I think it's interesting that um, you know what, at least on the surface, to me, would look like a hasty plan. I mean, look at five through seven again. I mean, the plan seems rather hasty. Right? It's like, hey, dude, <laughs> they're over there. Look, I think they're sleeping. Right? And then um, he gets two of his, he has two of his best men. They want to go, why do you think of Bimelech? They get tired. <laughs> Goes, hey, I'm out. I'm out. hard pass. This might be your fight. This is, do you think that's, is it because he's the Hittite? Yeah. I mean, that's the a word simple word means terror. Right. You know, so that when when they get to the camp, they saw Saul. Then it's Abner, Ner's yeah. son. Whatever the fact is, like, oh man, all these traitors, basically. You know, because yeah. <laughs> you you would argue that David would have known them all. Because right. yeah. that, that right. Saul's inner circle. Yeah, that David was part of his inner circle. Right. So that he's naming it. I mean, because they could have just said, you know, some guy. There were guys there, yeah. but the fact that they specified yeah. all of these the multiple syllabic. <laughs> creative names, you know, that they're people that yeah. he's like, when they wake up, it's like, I knew all of you, and yeah. I could have but I didn't. had revenge. Self-control. Self Being pictured, right? So, this hasty plan gets together, they go down there, and amazingly, or miraculously, we might better say, the plan works in the sense that A, they don't get captured, and B, he finds himself, or they find themselves, the two of them find themselves right next to David, right? Now, notice in verse 8, um, Abishai tells David to seize this golden opportunity. I think that's the translation, right? What is it? What's the actual translation? I translated it as golden opportunity. What is it? God has handed your enemy over to you. I like it. God has handed this over. What does the phrasing 
that is, of Abishai, what does the phrasing of his statement to David say about what he believes was happening? He thought it was a God thing. God intended yeah. for David to kill him in his sleep. It's very reminiscent, of, and again, I don't know the exact translation, it's very reminiscent of David when he basically said, you handed over the Philistines to me today fighting the giant. It's like, it don't matter. It's already decided. It's done. It seems very much like he's kind of echoing, like, okay, yeah, look, do you remember what happened with the Philistines? It's happening again. God's handing Saul over to you right here, right now. The time is here. It's going to happen. The time is here to make a decision. He he didn't call him Saul. He called him the enemy. Well, but that was Abishai. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm asking. For Abishai, what does the phrasing of Abishai's statement to David say about what he believed was happening. And I think you're right. It's like, he believes that God, I don't know if he believes it's Yahweh per se, or the gods, if you want to. I didn't go back and look. I'm, I, is it, is it uh, L-O-R-D capitalized? No, it's Elohim. So it's Elohim, the God, like the gods, you know, those in the higher plane have ordained this moment, right? So maybe that's the key. So when David hears him say Elohim instead of Yahweh, like the one true God has an hand over, but there must have been some... Are you raising your hand or just hold it? No. Okay, just hold it. Um, what's that? <laughs> I see that hand. Uh, is he... Um, why would this suggestion... God, the gods, that's probably the best way to translate it. The Elohim, those who exist on the heavenly plane... Those of us who have gone through the that uh, understanding of what we mean by the gods here, right? You go and you say, why would that be a tempting suggestion <coughs> today? Well, I think there's also a big difference between you know the lowercase gods and, and Yahweh. I mean, especially for David, um, he I think he would if he heard it the Elohim that might cause him to take pause. You know, that's that's not necessarily how Yahweh works. That might be how the gods work, but not Yahweh. And that may be David's mindset, right? And he's thinking to himself, yeah, that may be the, the, the gods, the Elohim, that may be how they do things, but Yahweh, you know, and you can argue from his response, that's what David thought, right? This isn't the way God wants things handled. But we have to admit, it must have been tempting Right? Yeah. Of course. Why? I mean, he's on the run. And his kingdom that he's supposed to have, he's not able to rule. Well, and it's, <laughs> well, I, it's a fairly bloodshed or minimal bloodshed solution, too. Yeah. He takes out Saul, and no other battles have to be fought, you know, that you cut the head off. Well, I mean, yes and no. Yeah. Like, I mean, He's in the center of a camp of 3,000 men. If I kill him now, am I making it out? You know, and what further bloodshed past that is just feuding. You know, I, I think that kind of the optics of the kingdom being handed over in proper succession versus a military coup of what the optics of it would actually look like. I don't know of very many military coups that are very long lasting before the cycles repeat. Yeah. And, 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 and it's a matter of like, okay, I could kill him now. Yes, I would no longer be on the run, so to speak, if I make it out of camp. 
but will I be accepted truly as king by taking it of my own volition versus it being passed down properly? But remember, and, and I agree with that statement, but what I want us to make sure that we have in the back of our mind, at the very least, is that understanding that in that culture and time, it would be common and probably normalized for Abishai to think exactly that. It's like, of course this is exactly set up the way it's supposed to happen. Because in that day, in that culture, it's like, okay, the gods must have, God or the gods, depending upon, you know, what part of the, if you're a follower of Yahweh or if you're in the surviving or the surrounding community, right? So there's a temptation, right, in that culture to do, it's like, hey, this is exactly playing out better than we could have given him out. Mike? I think David had, uh, he, I think David saw a bigger, a much bigger picture. Sure. Uh, because he could have very easily done the, I'm going to say selfish thing, thinking about his own safety and his own frustration that he's been feeling, and he's just getting rid of all that right now in one, one stroke. Uh, but it's, for whatever reason, it seems like he's been given the wisdom to not carry that out. And I think that's important that you identify that because um, David has heard from and knows from God that the kingdom is his and the crown is his. In the same way, like with our family table story this morning, Abraham and Sarah, well, eventually Abraham and Sarah, um, knew that God had promised them a son. hundred years later, it's still like roughly a hundred years later, it still hasn't happened. And they begin to think, well, maybe I should do something. Maybe God's been waiting on me for to do something, right? So there is that idea of, even if he has the better, you know, the bigger picture, he's like, well, maybe this is exactly how God intended it for it to happen. But for whatever reason, notice in what follows there, in 9 through 11, David has a different response. Like you said, I think he does have a bigger perspective. But is there anything else that you identify in those verses 9 to 11 that you think might account for the difference of opinion or for the difference in the way that David sees the situation and slash opportunity and the way that Abishab does? I would say on a, a personal kind of, and I don't think this was exactly the way David was thinking, but I might think if I'm anointed and I need to kill somebody anointed, that doesn't leave a lot of other outs for me. If the rule is we kill the anointed to become the next anointed, that's that's not a good game plan for where I am in this like secession. Yeah, it's it's the, it's the famous an eye for an eye right. leaves everybody blind. Right, right. right. But I, I don't think that's like I think there's more going on here. Of I mean, it almost feels like when he's saying no one can lift a hand against God's anointed, that almost feels like a mantra. He's picked that up somewhere, probably from stories that he's heard of the, the patriarchs coming down and you know coming back into the promised land and taking over in these battles in the promised land. Um, I, I'm, I've got to imagine that phrase has been used again and again in times of battle of no one can touch God's anointed. 
yeah. whether it was his anointed people or his anointing. Well, the the last part of that and go unpunished. Right, and go unpunished. You may so he right, right. We might lose this one. <laughs> yeah, I love that idea that it's a mantra. Yeah. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was playing golf, and um, those of you who know when I play golf, we always leave one open spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, what well, usually I would say like ninety five percent of the spot time to pick up somebody, and it's great because you know you get to have conversations, we get to share what we're doing at the table, you hear about Uganda, and this gentleman I was playing with, he must have been in his I don't know early late 60s, early 70s, as is often the case when you're teeing off at 6 o'clock in the morning. Getting retired from. And we were sitting there, and he hit the ball into the sand trap, the bunker. And then he started, I could hear him, he was going, I am an excellent bunker player. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you are just like those teenage boys. going like, well, I mean, I don't even know you, and you've only played two holes, and you're our, and he's like, I am an excellent bunker player. And I'm thinking to myself, in the world, so we pull up there, and he gets out, and just before he steps into the sand trap, he goes, I am an excellent bunker player. And he goes in there. To himself. Yeah, and you know what? It's been funny. I was like, oh, I know exactly what he's doing now. It's like, he's reminding himself, you know, I really am God's anointed. Right? <laughs> I really am a good bunker player. I just have to you know, live that out now, and I started doing that, and I'm actually hitting better out of the bunker, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> but that's that idea, right, if you, if you have that mantra, like, and in a lot of ways, like, with self-control, that's what it takes, right, that thing that we're telling ourselves, right, I could do this, but there will be consequences, and I don't like those consequences, so let's not do it, anything else? that stands out to you to account for the difference between Abide, did I say Abishai, and David? Well, the fact that Abishai just, it's like, you, you were saying that the perspective was this is your enemy that dehumanizes mm-hmm. someone, and David says don't kill him, don't kill the anointed, you know, and you can take that perspective and overlay some other things that if somebody, or some sort of thing, you know, when you put a humanness yes. to it, and the fact that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, or whatever, you know, that that it's in God's hands. It's not necessarily for you yeah. to, to right the wrongs by overreacting without self-control. So just to humanize someone or their own circumstances. And he listened to David. That's all right. He listened to David. Yeah. I mean, David said, don't kill him, and he didn't question well, it's interesting because I, I went and I checked uh, a lot of different writers, commentators on the path, you know, because the thing that struck me is if you just read it on its surface in the English and, you're, and you don't know, you know, our background in the unseen realm and understanding Elohim and whatever, so many writers, like 99% of the writers I read say both David and Abishai attribute their actions to God. So you have these... Like, God tell, God's doing, you know, it's telling you this, it's a perfect opportunity, and God's, David's saying, no, God is saying not to, right? That's where we have to be careful when we read, because they're not synonymous. David's saying, Yahweh says that you don't touch God's anointed. Basically, Abishai is saying the cultural, the gods are saying do it. That's how we're supposed to read it. Not that there's two people, but it does raise the question. In these moments when we're faced with challenging, how do we know that we're clearly discerning God's voice? 
Because we've got people in our ear sometimes, right? Going, what the situation is exactly. It's, it's lined up for you. Can you see the battle that that we face? How do we how do we ensure that we are clearly hearing the voice of God? Any ideas on that one? I think you have to know God's character. And the only way you know God's character is to be in his word, to hear what his word says and how he reveals himself through his word. Because if something's gonna be if you if something's talking to you and is contrary to what God has clearly shown us in his word, that that would help us make that discernment. And that's what David's basically doing. He's he's recurgitating back the law, the, the, the traditions that say when the anointed when the hand of God has anointed someone, it's not your place to remove that person. That's God's place. I've found in my life that usually if I've got a question, I already know the answer. I'm just looking for my way rather than God's way. I love it. I love it. When you're debating whether or not God is, you're clearly hearing from God, you pretty much believe you have. You just might not like the answer that you got. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. yeah. I like that. Um, I'll give you an example from our, our table slash cross point slash theater 166. Wow, 20 years of differing models. Um, uh History, because if you remember, uh, two years to the day we opened the theater, our immediate past iteration, right? When we were running the theater, uh, we had the lightning strike, took the building, collapsed, you know, the whole deal where, you know, there were people in the, in the nail shop, there were people in the liquor store, and none of those collapsed, just the little empty building for one, not little, but the empty building, which would have been filled about two hours later with a show, right? Collapses, right? And my immediate response was, well, obviously it was like, what just happened? But then when you reflect, you're like, okay, there's something bigger, there's something better. And I was stunned at the percentage of people who came to us and then left us saying that was God's sign for us to get out of doing that. <laughs> the same people seeing exactly the same situation coming to completely different conclusions, which was very hard for me at the time to go like but it does it, it's a legitimate question to ask right it's like so which one of these is it a sign you know of course more so in the time of David and and this where they would have viewed these things and you know um, as related to the God or gods but there is that instance in our life right in those instances in our life when um, we struggle right to exercise self-control and our text tells us at the end in verse 12 that David wasn't doing this he didn't exercise this self-control on his own what does it tell us in verse 12 so David took the spear and the water jug that were by Saul's head and he and Abishai left no one saw them no one knew they were there and no one woke up all of them remained asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, had come over them. So Yahweh, capital L translated in English, capital L-O-R-D, right? Yahweh helped David, right? So if we know God is present to help us in our struggle to help, uh, how does knowing that God is present to help us in our struggles 
How can it make it easier for us to exercise self-control? Or does the fact that God is with us now even differently, well, in the same way he was with David. David had the indwelling of the Spirit of God, which was a First Testament as needed basis. But of course we know in, um, after the gospel and after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, right, there to help. How does that, knowing that, how does that help us in our struggle? Or do we struggle to actually take advantage of that? What do you think? I, I struggle to remember it. Um, which might be a constant, why one of the constant mantras of the people of Israel is remember, 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 and then forget. But remember, 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 and forget. Yeah, I like that. It's true, remembering that, that we have that. What else? I think we have to see ourselves not as the fixer. But God is the fixer. We're not the fixer. We can be an instrument that he uses, but we're not the ultimate fixer in our world. What else? we know God is present to help us in our struggle, how can it be easier? How do we use that to help exercise self-control? Because it's a struggle for us, right? Would we all agree? Yeah, it's a struggle. I think it enables us to tap into a strength that's greater than our own. You know, we know we don't have necessarily the strength to maintain that self-control, but, you know, if we can use God for that. So practically, what does that look like? So we, we've identified one thing, right? First, we have to remember. Right? We have to have on in, in our bandwidth constantly that we have the dwelling power of the Holy Spirit, which is, by the way, uh, described as the dynamite of God. Right? So we have explosive power, right, in the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that. But practically speaking, what do we? What, what does that mean, that the, the, the Holy Spirit can help us? I would say, um, keeping in mind that you're not the fixer, if you're not in a situation, that situation can't possibly get fixed. You can't be an instrument. So I'm, I'm going back to David just deciding, send out spies to make sure that they were there. So he did some planning, but then he went. He just put himself in a situation, not knowing how it was going to work out, you don't do that unless you firmly believe God is God. And the, thing, the things he was saying were, God's going to take care of moving Saul out of being anointed. He gave but control. he put himself in a situation where he could be an instrument. And it, it did. It changed some people's minds that day. Yeah. When he yelled from across the other side, yeah. they started asking some questions. Yeah. So put yourself in situations. Hmm. <laughs> well, it also showed, I don't want to say it's a test, but, I mean, God kept them asleep to give David that opportunity, which direction are you going to go? Right? Are you going to go the easy way, or are you going to go the other way? Maybe he did go to talk to him there, but it's just sleeping. Do what? Maybe he initially mm -hmm. did go to talk to him. Like, 
in a practical, practical ways. To remind ourselves that God's present to help us in our struggle. I think that um, self-control requires waiting, waiting for an answer before we do the ultimate impacts of cutting someone off, of destroying a relationship, or whatever it may be. We have to strength when we wait. And that's like a reoccurring thing we've had here, right? Throughout the, the summer, it's like, how do we learn to react? Not to react, but to respond, right? Because when we react, mostly we react lacking set of compassions. Yeah, out of our passion, right? But if we first recognize that that would be reacting instead of responding, yeah, I think that's good. Any final thoughts? I mean, you guys have done a great job for the last... Uh, three months throughout the summer. I know it's been in and out, and hopefully in the next couple of weeks we'll get our the last of our our summer travelers back uh, back with us. Um, but I think we've done a really uh, great job digging through these and using individual stories to help identify some of the steps we can use in our own lives to cultivate these attributes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.